I'm going to talk about conflicts and conflicts, which is the project in the making. And I'm here because basically we'd like to network with you and um, garner support and um, partners to this. You wouldn't believe it, but in the tranquil setting of rural Foxshire, is a room full of stifled rebellion, revolution, and repression. Abstract paintings which are largely misunderstood and ignored, but have huge latent power and are potentially far more relevant to today than people might think. Dustin Dunstan holds an internationally significant collection of modern Spanish works created by dissident artists in President Franco's Spain and acquired by Sir George Labouchere during his time as British ambassador in 1960 Madrid. Sir George took a particular interest in Spanish art during his time in Madrid and knew many of the artists whose work he collected personally. But the potency, relevance and impact of these challenging works by members of the El Paso group of painters and others are largely lost on audiences at Douglaston. The subversive paintings are products of the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War and the impact of Franco's brutal dictatorship, which caused turmoil amongst communities, pitching friend against friend, neighbour against neighbour, in a war that still remains largely hidden and secretive in many parts of Spain today. They are post-conflict responses in a landscape where the effects of the conflict were, however, very much still present and in force. They show how artistic expression was, and is, a way of dealing with and commenting on the unutterable mental and physical effects of conflict, repression and genocide. The Spanish Civil War was fought from 1936 to 1939. Republicans fought against a revolt by the nationalists, an alliance led by a military group, among whom General Francisco Franco soon achieved a preponderant role. The war was variously viewed as class struggle, a war of religion, a struggle between dictatorship and republican democracy, between revolution and counter-revolution, between fascism and communism. It has frequently been called, and I hate this term, the dress rehearsal for World War I. The El Paso group of painters and sculptors started in Madrid in 1957 and consisted of the painters Rafael Canada, Luis Feito, Juana Frances, Manolo Milanes, Manuel Rivera, Antonio Suarez, Antonio Sala, and the sculptor Pablo Serrano. Dunmaston has worked by the last five of these artists, including Pablo Serrano, who is considered to be one of the most important Spanish artists of the 20th century, Antonio Saura, a Spanish artist and writer, one of the major post-war painters to emerge in Spain in the 50s, plus Tapias, a Spanish painter, sculptor and art theorist, who became one of the most famous European artists of his generation. Sir George referred to Tapias as the abstract artist to end all abstract artists. On the following slides, I'm going to be showing you the paintings and the sculpture in the collection at Douglaston, which is going to be on the top right of each of my slides. And the words that I'm going to be speaking now are quotations from a book by Helen Graham uh, called The Spanish Civil War, published in 2005. 
Amidst the wrenching catastrophes of 20th century European history, the Spanish Civil War continues to exert a particular fascination. It was the first war fought in Europe in which civilians became targets en masse through bombing raids on big cities. General Francisco Franco rose to supreme military and political command during the Civil War and, having won it, ruled Spain for the next 36 years. He had no doubt that he was justified in using terror against the civilian population. The health of the nation, as he saw it, demanded the elimination of the industrial proletariat. Spain's Catholic hierarchy continued to identify itself unequivocally with Franco. Their shared hostility to rationalism, Freemasonry, liberalism, socialism and communism meant there was far too much shared ideological common ground for it to be otherwise. Church personnel also played a key role in the running of prisons, reformatories and other correctional facilities. Both during and after the war, Franco reduced the judicial process to a branch of state terror, with cruel treatment of detainees involving dehumanisation, torture and unlawful killing. New cultural products were specifically designed as propaganda. Probably the most important of these was cinema. The indigenous film industry grew significantly. In furnishing a space where people could dream, it offered a respite from their immediate painful predicaments. Even though the Frankist authorities generally disapproved of the decadence of films and subjected them to careful censorship. And this painting actually is one of the ones that we use most frequently to try and help others to find a way into this art, uh, showing the mass of the population of the people as if they were in a cinema as the audience. And on the screen that they are ostensibly looking at, the figures looking back at them are the people who are in charge, so the, the church and the state and the judiciary. So who is watching whom? Towards the end of the war, in 1939, came the Republic's near-total diplomatic isolation. What Franco's bombing raids had failed to achieve was brought about by the cumulative effects of non-interventionist embargo. People started to wish for the end. Just let it be over. It doesn't matter how it ends, but let it end now. Franco wanted unconditional Republican surrender and issued the law of political responsibilities, which would allow the regime to implement blanket repression. And on this slide, um, if only we'd known, uh, in Santander, a gallery has just held an exhibition of the works on paper of Manolo Milares, um, entitled The Silent Scream, this, this repression um, of the people, including, as they said on their website, a large number of previously unshown works. And I got in touch with myself, I bet you haven't seen the two that we've got, which is something that we want to, to change. Over 400,000 Spaniards sought sanctuary in exile, but thousands of others were sucked straight into the European maelstrom of war and annihilation. Around 10,000 Spanish Republicans died in Nazi camps. Tens of thousands were judicially murdered after summary military trials. Hundreds of thousands more men, women and children spent time in what historians now term the penal universe of Francoism, reformatories, prisons and concentration camps, and subjected to a sustained and brutal attempt to reconfigure their consciousness and values. 
Babies and young children were removed from their imprisoned mothers and had their names changed so that they could be adopted by regime families. The war continued across the 1940s in many intense forms of institutionalised repression and discrimination. No sphere was immune. The law itself was acting as a major instrument of repression. Church personnel were agents of social discipline in post-war Spain. Priests reported on their parishioners to the political authorities. As long as Franco's regime endured, there could be no national symbols or public discourse that reflected the experience of the defeated. The Republican dead could never be publicly mourned. In villages all over Spain, many kept secret lists of the dead. Women concealed the violent deaths of husbands and fathers from their children in order to protect them psychologically. The silent knowledge of unquiet graves produced a devastating schism between public and private memory in Spain. And this picture by Tapias in particular makes us think of you know, potentially a coffin that is smothered in a shroud. We don't know who it is, we don't know what the words are, but it's a symbol of repression. And yet, in the post-war period of Spain, in the mid-20th century, people were living in frighteningly separate social worlds. Alongside savage poverty and widespread terror, there existed other milieu of ease, security and order regained. This was the world of Sir George and Lady Labouchere in their diplomatic posting to Madrid in 1960-66. to And the following extracts I'm going to read are from Lady Labouchere's letters home uh, to her parents when she was in Madrid with her husband. 23rd of March 1961. I have been to a fashionable dress show to see what is to be worn this summer. Madame Franco was there and the foreign minister's wife. I spoke to both of them, of course. We all agreed that the hats were too awful. I'm glad we no one wears hats here. They are the ugliest I have ever seen. 1st of May 1961. George is enjoying himself in Barcelona. He's been in the studio of the best Spanish artists and needless to say, fallen for a picture. However, the man is world famous, so it is interesting to have. The head of the Museum of Modern Art comes here on Sunday and wishes to see his things. They have few international modern pictures in Spain, so they may want to show them here and anyway are interested in them generally. 19th of January, 1966. I think this is the point where Sir George was leaving his ambassadorial post to return to England when they were going to come and live uh, at Douglaston together. George had his audience with General Franco, embraced and called adopted son of Spain, given a photograph in a silver frame, could not have been more friendly or crazy, and saying that he had heard he was called Jorge and Pompeto. Property, Douglaston, has an urgent and long overdue ambition to redisplay these works and to do them justice by setting them in their historical, social, and political context. We also want to explore comparisons with current responses to conflict and division. Much of what was at stake in Spain remains in present day dilemmas, at whose heart lie issues of race, religion, gender, and other forms of cultural war that challenges not to resort to political or other types of violence. We are looking to develop strategic partnerships with academic institutions and collaborate on research. 
We want to identify science galleries or museums with whom to form links, possibly including the Museum of Contemporary Art in Madrid, where Sir George exhibited his extensive modern art collection, not just his Spanish works, he had modern British and European as well, um, in Madrid in 1965, and you can see the catalogue front cover top left there. This included works by Tapias, Saura, Rivera, Suarez, Milares, and Serrano, so these, these dissident artists, and whose catalogue described his collection as art of the extreme avant-garde. Doing all this would help us put the collection in a wider context of how people's conscience makes them respond to conflict then and now. It would enable us to engage and provoke people to think differently about this collection, raising its profile, meaning and significance. So essentially what I'm here today to tell you about and ask you is to help us, uh, put us in contact with, with those who can help us, because we want to explore questions such as, as the collector of this art, how did this affect Sir, George's, uh, Sir George Abishev's role and attitude in Madrid? Where and how did he buy this subversive art, and how was it regarded in Franco's Madrid? To what extent were these artists defining Spanish avant-garde of the post-war era, era and or responding to the stifled emotions, fear and repression within Spanish society, or both? Because El Paso means the step. So is this a step to a new art in Spain, avant-garde, or is it a step in marking the conflict and how they're responding to it? How would Spanish people regard this art today and what does it mean to them? How can our current civil unrest and societal division help visitors identify with this art? What are the impacts of the polarisation society that we are seeing today? Civil unrest, uncertainty, the rise of protest marches in this country in response to Brexit, to the other civil war, and the riots on the streets of Paris and Hong Kong. And which artists are responding to the polarisation of Britain today? That's it. <laughs> Okay, right, fine. So I'm going, to, I'm going to change the focus a little bit and talk about ideas of landscape, particularly as manifested in First World War discourse and more specifically still using Andrew Clark's contemporaneous Words in Wartime collection as a case study. So um, Andrew Clark's collection exists in Robin Library in Oxford here. It's a kind of linguistic scrapbook of war, which he began helpfully on day one of World War One and carried on to 1919. And then, and and it exists in over well over 100 notebooks and files, and now in a digital database on uh, my Leafhue-funded project. So Clark's aim then was to create um, a kind of real-time record of what came to be known as World or the Great One. He's very interested in this idea of living history, about what might be remembered, or what might be forgotten of the words in which we, uh, which we use to articulate experience as it happens. So landscape, then, is, a, is an interesting, it's often really insightful way of exploring the mediation of conflict. So in the words we use, the innovations in language that conflict brings into use, or the changing forms of obsolescence or expressivity uh, that we can also see. Stereotypically, of course, World War I is unspeakable. And um, you know, it really brings silence rather than abundance of words. And it's often, as in this um, slide here, depicted as uh, you know, the hope that something seen as being isolated 
um, change and marked by its communicative gaps with the realities of war. Clark then provides interesting correctives on both um, counts. So by design, World War Time was a kind of countercultural OED from the very beginning. It was based on usage tools integration and it drew an interesting symbiosis of methods and ideas. So just to give a quick context first, um, it developed initially from Clark's work as a long-standing volunteer contributor for the first edition of the Oxford Dictionary, which in 1914 was still slowly making its way through the alphabet. Uh, the OED is, of course, also a kind of historical document. Um, it was set up, uh, the quote here, uh, to represent the history of the nation from one point of view um, on historical principles. Um, and each entry, as you mentioned, the battle, say, um, creates a kind of lexical biography, that was the kind of principle behind it, where words move from birth, here then battle was born in 1297, <laughs> and then we move through its life to eventual death were necessary. However, as you can see, OED1 tended to do this in ways which privileged the cultural monuments of the past so that nobody in this entity is actually in a battle. Um, so that um, contemporary sources, particularly ones that class or as quintessential aspects of living history, are usually marginalised both in particular entries, as we can see here, and also and general principles, actually, in the making of the dictionary. And the legacies of these still linger on into what we see today. So it's like, just basically ignore new words <laughs> that have appeared in newspapers. Uh, just keep your focus on modern literary words and, you know, great authors. Like, banish newspapers, banish the ephemeral. And particularly, words that really encapsulate the historical moment. If Tennyson does them, let's go for it. Anyone else know? And, so, <laughs> and there are lots of directives like this that underpin the making of the Oxford English Dictionary then. So Clark's principles from the very beginning were kind of reactive against this. So on day one of World War One, he also stops being a contributor and working behind the scenes of the and does this instead. And so instead, he decided to privilege ephemera, news discourse, advertising, as very different ways of thinking about how history and language intersect. Uh, waiting not then for recollection and tranquility, but searching out instead the often very transient patterns by which words inscribe ongoing events and responses to them. And so there's a much more dynamic engagement with it, where history is anywhere, linguistic history is anywhere and everywhere. No piece of information is safe from Clark over the years of World War One, actually. So thinking about place is a really interesting example of this. You could take one example about Louvain, Louvain in Belgium. So in August 1914, this might be a famous site of conflict and cultural desecration at the hands of the enemy. Um, by which over a thousand buildings, including the university library and manuscripts, were destroyed by fire. For Clark, though, researching in this kind of contemporaneity, then you can see Louvain emerging as a highly mobile linguistic form. It makes its way into English in ways which contribute to the negative semanticization of the enemy. So you see in my second bit there, um, then the uh, the German army are Louvaining and looting on their way, I mean they're burning everything. So to Louvain becomes a kind of wartime coinage, which is very negative. But 
Uh, so one level then, Rinvan can be seen as a kind of language of resistance in English, but it can also inscribe a kind of language of solidarity by what plant documents, again, other wartime constructions that emerge at this point, as part of a war nomenclature, and also as a war street name, for example. And I did a few searches on right move, as you can see, and we can still see the legacies of Rouvain, which it becomes physically written on written from 1914, this is, as an appropriated language of place, while also in, in assuming interpreted trajectories of its own as it played out in British culture. So there's kind of like a little clipping here, for example, where Louvain is a bit of graffiti written on the side of the building, signifying a, st a state of ruin or, or desolation. And we can see similar importations of a language of, of um, place by a ring, for example, in the second clipping there where we can be in a town in the Midlands, but we can also be in our room cathedral, for example, um, where we've got a similar pattern of appropriation, a changed pattern of meaning, where we're thinking about the language place in quite different ways, and where we're intersecting conflict and post-conflict -conflict senses. Um, German place, however, I suppose, prompts other forms of silencing. So certain forms of mobilising given prominence in writing and rewriting place. There are, there are lots of attempted um, silences, a bit like that xenophobic purism we were thinking about this morning, actually, where German becomes the stigma, for example, and people just don't want to live in German place anymore, and they prefer to call it temporary place. So there's lots of examples like that where place names recalibrate a changing sense of identity, playing alongside new patterns of allegiance or solidarity or resistance. So proper names of this kind and the patterns of signification they assume uh, can tend to be missed out of conventional language histories. They're not in the OED. Um, proper names are not part of language, the OED says. Clark men, just in place names, for example, argue for a far more liberal historiography uh, which was really in, you know, engaged with how words might mean at particular points in time and place. And this history as a kind of spoken process, really. So writing place in a number of ways is very responsive to the kind of linguistic micro-history that Clark wanted to uh, perform. What he's doing really, which goes back to an earlier war, really. So, on one level, he's using legacies that emanate from the ongoing empirical methods of the OED with an emphasis on data, um, attributed pieces of evidence to say, right, this is, this is true about the language practice at this time. But in other ways, his evidence and his approaches come from very different sources. In fact, in Civil War stories, I'm not Civil War anymore. Um, such as John Aubrey and Anthony, and Anthony Wood. So um, Clark had earlier edited John Aubrey's um, Brief Lives, and he was the major editor of Wood's Life and Times. And in these, there's a very different 
patterning of history. So, for example, one reviewer said in reviewing Clark's edition of Wood that surely this volume consists of 500 pages of trivialities. And Clark had already created criticism of this kind by saying, actually, the trivial is often of help towards understanding the matters and habits of the time. And likewise, in his edition in, in Aubrey, then there's a lot of emphasis, which Clark also draws attention to, to the idea that history takes place in minutes of lives, and that history is tumultuary, um, working in unpredictable ways, and that if we don't take notice of these incidental meeting, uh, meanings, then so many things, as Aubrey warned, would be swallowed up in oblivion. So these are the two principles that actually fuse in words in wartime. So we end up then in with the age of right, language history with loneliness in a period of significant historical change in a resituated historiography which is replete with tens of thousands of scraps of evidence that don't appear anywhere else. So this means that he can draw attention to lots of um, the shifting visibilities, if you want, of war, not only in zones of active conflict, which he does extensively, but also on the home front too. So if we look at, for example, civic landscapes are very interesting in words and wartime. So we can think about how roles of honour change in their visibility and signification across the war. So in the beginning of the war, there are no roles of honour. And then if you go through quite early on, by, 19, uh, by late 1914, roles of honour start to appear as part of the civic landscape in lots of cities. And what we can see are towns and villages. And what we can see is, in fact, they mean something quite different at this point. They are a celebration, a patriotic celebration of place. Um, they signal those who have enlisted, not those who have died. They invite a patriotic celebration of how many people have um, enlisted from a particular place. Invisible patterns of honour or its absence, actually, for those whose names did not appear. So it's a very different way. And I particularly like one of the word that doesn't appear in the, um, uh, the OED, the recruiting barometer that appeared in Manchester, for example, uh, where outside Manchester Town Hall, as Clark records, a huge barometer was erected to recall the patriotism temperature of the city, where the mercury represents the number of recruits that were enrolled from hour to hour, the kind of visual competitiveness that we measure patriotism and place by the size of our roles of honour. You see, now these are very mutable forms, obviously. These disappear. Uh, by the time we've got the conscription in 1916, we no longer have a recruiting barometer in Manchester. And likewise, people don't have a choice. And likewise, roles of honour start to inscribe memory in different ways, recalling the fallen, the, the absences. And there's a very difficult moment of transition where, for example, Clark is asked to create a role of honour in his own local village. Um, but he, he, gets, he does refuse to do it because he said it was so sad last time because he has to keep taking names away as people die. So gradually the, the role of honour becomes some other form actually where he actually becomes, goes into a different form of memorialisation. And we can see this also in like temporary, a language of the temporary war shrine. That, you know, so these are kind of impromptu places of both memory and hope that appear around the nation. Again, not only OD, Clark records quite a lot of these about how war is enacted in a civic landscape. Or we can see it in also, I thought there were a few trees in here, so there are tre disappearing trees here. 
Um, so, again, uh, thinking about the kind of work which record the shifting landscape, so here then the kind of the, the, the new habitations that appear, the disappearing forests, for example, uh, the rise of hut barracks, again, words that don't appear anywhere else, or Kitchener huts, etc., which litter the nation, and, and invite us to kind of think about what the landscape of law is in very different ways. This is again in response to the surge of volunteers early in the war. But of course we can think about um, the aftermath of attack, conflict and post-conflict slightly more directly. And this is often quite closely aligned in language too. So I thought we might do something about Scarborough very briefly and the kind of post-conflict landscape. Here. Uh, this in December 1914, Scarborough, Whitby, and the Harpers were bombed by German cruisers in the North Sea. Uh, for Clark, this revealed the new centrality of what was then known as civilian war. What we know from total war was 1914 is called civilian war. Um, so beyond all previous struggles, as one of things, this is a civilian war, a war in which civilians suffer and in which civilians alleviate the suffering. It's a kind of another form of symbiosis, essentially. Um, the heat, Scarborough was white, and, and the, the attack um, on the, the northeast coast was widely documented. And for Clark, again, it's thinking about how language is used to encapsulate what's going on. So, for example, so December 1914 is A, the key moment then in the emergence of civilian warfare, where non combatants become uh, the direct object of attack, here by sea, later by air, a whole long scale of zeppelins and zeppelin bombings as well. Um, but we can see it here emerging in the new conceptualization of something called sea attack, meaning another usage for the duration, an attack on the nation from sea. So what, what has happened at this point is a sea attack. And we can also see um, how Scarborough is being described. Loads of other new words start to appear. You know, how do we write Scarborough now? So if we just go forwards, this is typically Scarborough's site of meaning to do with innocent seaside pleasure, for example. Um, it is a, has its splendid situation on the Yorkshire coast. It has manifold attractions. And then suddenly these meanings are displaced by like articles like this one on the use of shrapnel, and Scarborough is depicted, as in this recruiting poster, in terms of its shattered roofs and gables, its twisted ideas, its wrecked interiors, etc. So, uh, um, and, and a very different form of language as well. And it's, it's very interesting because Scarborough then is at on one level localised, but made into a recruiting poster, it can be delocalised and spread across the nation in an evocative course. What Scarborough means, again, is quite different. So Scarborough becomes our Louvain, for example, yet another iteration of Louvain, uh, which is now relocated on the northeast coast and mobilising really evocative readings of innocence and depredation. So, um, so we can think about uh, here, so as Cornish and Saunders argue, for example, landscape to always cultural artefacts in which relevant forms are tied irrevocably to a sense of place and national identity. Clark's maybe suggests a different way around this, where cultural artefacts actually become quite mobile and can quite suggest quite different readings of place and allied readings of place for 
the duration. So invitations to remember Scarborough don't invite us to remember this, okay? but they invite us to remember this idea of a language of desecration. So, uh, and we can see um, you know, a, a new language where it's characterised by its shrapnel-splashed streets, its she-shelled buildings, etc., etc., in new words again, which are not otherwise recorded. So this kind of very micro-language of place. So, uh, and in terms of that seeing individuals as manifestations of place, because something that Fiona said earlier, that we can also see how place can be written literally um, in battlefield names, as I would call the number one, on um, the individual, how, how the people and the places correlate. So George Shatton, very unfortunate child, was a bombardment baby. So uh, uh, the first name in honour of the king, and the second as a memento of German attack. So, uh, it is, uh, so you literally write history in the names that you use. So for Clark then, history takes place upon thousands of incremental tiny bits of evidence building up this picture of the way in which language shapes um, a sense of war and not only replicates it but refracts it in different ways. And so we end up with all sorts of new words coming into being which aren't used before. So, for example, mentioned craters, for example, not in one, uh, and then but used initially on the Western Front, we're very familiar with the Western Front, but it's actually then it's very interesting the way in which um, declivities in the British landscape start to be described as craters, initially after an actual raid, but then gradually moving into wider uses where we articulate natural phenomena in different ways. Or likewise, we can think about the language of trench warfare on the home front. Trench warfare is another coinage of World War One. doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist when we start doing trench warfare, so it's a bit of a challenge to write about. Initially, which is something Clark finds very interesting, but we can also see um, the way here in which um, you know we have dugouts on the home front. What we later earlier this morning focused on air shelters, but what you call these? This is the idea about one is literally digging into the landscape. One's encouraged to dig in. Uh, that shows us in this little bit here again. People who have a little or no basement are debating that they might just sit on the lower step of their staircase in a Zeppelin attack or dig holes in their back garden. So this is kind of changing intersection with place. And likewise, trenches, uh, trench was a new entry in the OED in June 1914. They, in the OED, it's an improvised um, defensive structure that didn't match the trenches that people saw appearing on the coast around Britain or uh, in the kind of practice trenches that they saw, which was a different meaning of trench. So it's the way in which language and history are reshaping all the time. So why entanglements not in the OD, entanglements not in the OD one. So this new language and, and the new way of articulating place. And also, even in domestic spaces, where what you put in your garden, again, brings us back to issues of xenophobic purism and the kind of identity and patience that we might articulate, even by what we grow. So these patterns of silencing, uh, which is very interesting. So, uh, um, so ultimately, what Clark was interested in was this way in which, if you collect enough information, can you then pr prevent knowledge of a particular period fading into the oblivion of which 
um, organ worn. So it's an exercise in kind of linguistic memory. And he was an obsessive collector, collecting things on just about every single uh, instance from kind of like, they want revenge of nature, nature plays the hunt. Where if nature is attacking buildings, and surely it can only be because nature is somehow German. Very confused, so <laughs> meanings here. And, and uh, you know, or moving on to the language of reconstruction, and then there's a new meaning that emerges at this time the need to re establish what might, because of conflict, have been lost and devastating. So he moves into 1919 thinking about the language of reconstruction. So he ends up with this linguistic panorama in which landscape um, is, is a very interesting form linked in to the shaping and reshaping of place. Most of the words collected there have been silenced and forgotten. So they just sit there in the collection. Okay, thank you very much.